along in your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13 this morning. Acts chapter 13. You know, I did miss one more announcement, and that's uh, that the kids' church, Jackie, uh, our, our kids' church leader, is looking for any more uh, volunteers who would like to teach or just be a volunteer in the kids' ministry once a month or so. If you are interested in that, we would really appreciate and love your help. So if you could just, after the service, go over to the kids' church and let Jackie know that you would like to be a, a, a volunteer for us. All right. Okay, so we've been going through uh, the book of Acts. And if you were here last Sunday, you know how we saw uh, that Paul and Barnabas, who were two of the great five teachers in the church of Antioch in Syria, they were called by the Holy Spirit during a Holy Spirit meeting, and they were sent out by the Holy Spirit, and then the elders of, of the church, the leaders of the church in Antioch, they lay, laid their hands on them, and they sent them out too, and they went on their first great missionary journey to fulfill Jesus' commission that they're not just supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but they're supposed to go to the ends of the earth. Now, they didn't know this was going to be the first missionary journey, right? We call, that, call this the first missionary journey because Paul takes three separate missionary journeys in the book of Acts. But they're just going out by the Holy Spirit trying to get the gospel promoted as quickly as they possibly can. So this is a quick journey. They're only staying in places for days instead of like on some of their other journeys where they stay there weeks or months or even years. They're just staying places days and, and moving from one place quickly to another. So we saw last Sunday, the first place they went was the island of Cyprus, which was just off the coast of Israel. And it's where Barnabas was from. It's where his family lived. And we saw how they ministered there in the two major cities of the island of Cyprus that were on opposite ends of the island. They ministered first in the synagogue, and then uh, they later ministered to the most powerful official, the most powerful man on the entire island, who was, had a, uh, a sorcerer who was kind of trying to blind him from the gospel. But what happened? Remember what Paul did? He made that man blind temporary, and ultimately that most powerful man on the island, Sergius Paulus, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. So that's where we're picking up right after that encounter they have with that man. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, that's where Sergius Paulus was on Cyprus, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, this is who was earlier called John Mark, this is Mark, right? Departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. All right, let's just stop right there. Let's get the setting, give you a, a visual idea of what's going on here. Where is Perga in Pamphylia? Well, let's pull up a couple pictures. Um, here's a map of Paul's uh, first missionary journey. We see they stop in Salamis and Paphos on Cyprus first. Then they go all the way over, you see, to a territory there called Pamphylia. And 12 miles inland is the city of Perga. And so Pamphylia was like sort of this valley area in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Taurus Mountains. 
I don't know if you can see it well, but there's a big mountain range there. And then above that mountain range is the territory of Galatia, which we'll see is where they end up ministering on their first missionary journey. It's almost solely in Galatia and Cyprus. And so do we have another uh, picture there as well? Here's just another uh, demonstration. Pamphylia, again, that territory down low where they stop first, and then they begin a long trek into Galatia through the mountains. So that's what's happening. This, of course, is where modern-day Turkey is, just so you have a, a visual of, you know, um, what's going on today in that area. And uh, when you see that sea route they take from Paphos on Cyprus to Italia, that seaport city there in Pamphylia, it's about a 150-mile journey by sea. And then Perga is about 12 miles inland that they would have trekked on land. Now, it's interesting here in verse 13 that Luke introduces the group as Paul and his party. This is interesting because in the last five mentions of Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas' name always comes first. But now his name isn't even mentioned. He's just part of Paul's party. Now, this doesn't mean that Barnabas doesn't play a big role going forward. We will see that he does. But, um, you know, he definitely recedes into the background now. And in fact, he doesn't go on Paul's next two missionary journeys with him. And Barnabas, you know, at this time maybe could have been tempted to be envious that Paul was taking the lead role. We'll see that Paul is the one who gives the speeches in the synagogues. Paul is the one who gives the speeches in the public squares. But I don't imagine that Barnabas was all that upset about just being part of Paul's party. Remember, Barnabas was somebody who really believed in Paul. When he got to Antioch with some of the other Cyprian missionaries and Cyrenian missionaries, he's the one who had the idea to go and find Paul, who he had known earlier, and bring him to Antioch because he, know, he knew how much of a powerful preacher he was and how much revelation he had concerning the gospel going to Gentiles and God-fears and people who just weren't ethnically Jewish. We know that Paul, our Barnabas is the one who initially introduced Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem. You know, Barnabas, his name just means son of encouragement. His name really was Joseph, but he, he was an encourager, and he was glad to be in the supporting role of Paul on their journey. It doesn't seem like he was a guy who had much of an ego. He was, he was very happy to take a supporting role, an encouraging role. And, uh, you know, that's so important in the work of the church, in the work of the ministry, is people who can understand their calling and their gift in the church as an Barnabas, as an encourager, as someone who is... Um, just happy to be known as someone who is of Paul's party, but doesn't need right their name at, at the top of that list. And, you know, we see something uh, that comes up in Acts 15, is that he, he also is that supporting, encouraging role to his cousin John Mark, who is the guy who, who left him here. So, he just continues in that role. He knows that he has a special anointing, a special calling to be in that role of an encourager. Well, we're told after that 160-mile journey from Paphos on Cyprus to Perga 
over sea and over land, that that's when John Mark decides, well, I want to go home. I want to go back to Jerusalem. Now, that's kind of strange, right? If he wanted to go back, why would he take that 160-mile journey? Why not just go back from Cyprus, which was a lot closer to Jerusalem? Well, something must have happened there in Perga, when they're in Pamphylia, which causes John Mark to second-guess, have second questions about you know, his role on that missionary journey. And remember, this is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. This was someone who was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. This is someone who was a resident in the city of Jerusalem, whose mother owned a prominent house in, in the city. He, he, was, he was a cousin of Barnabas, probably meaning that he was a Levite. And so he probably even had access to the temple uh, precinct, sort of like uh, the Apostle John did. But we're not told why he left. But we do know from Acts 15 that Paul did not think the reason why he left was a good reason. He didn't believe that John Mark was justified for leaving him and, and Barnabas. And so, you know, we can only make a conjecture as to why he might have left in a, in, a, in a manner that was displeasing to Paul. Some say he might have been homesick and he just wanted to go home. And that, that doesn't make too much sense to me because he knew he was going on a long missionary journey. And this was a quick one where they're, like I said, only spending days certain places. So that doesn't make too much sense. Maybe that had something to do with it. But what makes more sense to me is that um, when, when they got there, uh, he would have been confronted with sort of the, the difficulty of the journey that was ahead of them. So let's look at verse 14. This is what Acts 13, 14 says. But when they departed from Perga, this is talking about Paul and Barnabas. Remember, John Mark had already left. They came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So we know that where Paul and Barnabas wanted to go was to Antioch in Pisidia. And I imagine that when John Mark heard that they wanted to go to Antioch in Pisidia, that that might have been a little discomforting to him. Antioch in Pisidia was a hundred-mile trip on foot through the rugged Taurus mountain range, and it was an a notorious um, road that was full of thieves who would prey on different travelers. And on top of that rugged journey where you were dealing with robbers and thieves, there was quite a bit of elevation change as well. You basically went from sea level at the Mediterranean up 3,600 feet into the, the territory of Galatia. And so here's even some pictures of that exact route that Paul and Barnabas would have went through. Here's the Taurus Mountains uh, there near Perga, if we can go to the next uh, picture. And here's a, a trip that a lot of people even take today, which is called uh, the, the Paul's uh, hiking trip from Perga all the way up to Antioch and Pisidia. And uh, it was no uh, easy journey. And like I said, it was likely a very dangerous journey. One reason we know that is because of Paul's own testimony about his journeys. These weren't easy journeys. These were very challenging journeys. And this is what he says about his journeys in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. 
he said that he was in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, <laughs> right? Paul is making the point to the Corinthians there that his ministry was anything but a bed of roses, right? It was challenging. It was dangerous. He uses that word peril, which simply means dangerous, right? And he uses it eight times here. So why would someone in their right mind want to risk so much danger constantly? I mean, remember, Paul had a, a really good position before he came to Christ Jesus, right? He was, he was one of the, uh, Gamaliel's top disciples, the top rabbi of that day. He was like his prized student. He called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. His life was made for him. He could have had a really good life. But what changed to where he would turn his life upside down and experience so much suffering and persecution and danger and peril? Well, he met the risen Jesus, right? And when you meet the risen Jesus, that changes you, right? <laughs> and it, it doesn't matter what your life was before. You just know you want to follow Jesus. And you know Jesus will take care of you, even if there is trial, even if there is tribulation, even if there is dif difficulty. You're willing to risk your life. You're willing to risk your limb for the sake of the love of Jesus Christ that's been poured out in your heart. And you know, this risk, that Paul and Barnabas is willing to take on these dangerous journeys, on these long and, and, and you know, trying journeys. He, he talks about in another, that same passage, how he's in hunger and thirst often, right? He's in fastings often. I mean, this was no easy ordeal. Well, the question is, is what sort of risk can, can we take, right? And, um, <laughs> well... We, we need to be filled with the love of Jesus Christ to the extent where we're willing to take risks in life, where we're willing to be uncomfortable in life, where we're willing to do things because we know our ultimate destination, right? And we know uh, that, that the one inside of us, the love of Christ inside of us, is compelling to do things that might at times be uncomfortable to the flesh. But Mark, you know, while, while Barnabas and Paul, right, they put their head down to the plow and they go forward, what, is, what does Mark do? Well, we're told he looks back, right? And um, after that 150-mile boat trip, he says, I'm going to get on the boat and go back, right? Something about the new territory intimidated him. Something made him draw back in fear. At that point in his life, he was unwilling to fight the good fight of faith. He was unwilling to finish the race, right? And it was a really sad event, and it really ticked Paul off, right? It really, and it stuck with Paul a while. Like, this Mark guy, uh, you know, I, I don't know about him. And we'll pick up on their story again in Acts 15. But the beautiful thing is, by the end of Paul's life, Mark becomes a valuable asset to him. 
And Mark eventually overcame his fears, over, overcame whatever trial he was facing early on, which caused him to turn back, where he says, no, I'm going to pick up my cross. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to go with Paul, even if it means persecution, even if it means prison, even if it means danger, even if it means trials. I know the one who has called me. You know, it's interesting when, when Mark flees here from Paul and Barnabas, it's probably not the first time he flees in Scripture. In fact, in his gospel, he records an incident in the Garden of Gethsemane that is only recorded by him. And most uh, scholars believe that this is an autobiographical detail. This is what it says in Mark 14 51. And a young man followed him. This is after Jesus had been arrested and was being led away by the Romans. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So here we see a man running away naked, right, in fear. That's a weird, that's a weird detail, right, to have in the story. And this is one reason why... People think it's autobiographical that he's writing about himself as a young man, probably a teenager in this moment. And, and he runs away. Well, that's, that's what he, 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 he's doing with, with Paul and Barnabas. But eventually, he understands the power of picking up the cross, which becomes a big theme even in his gospel, taking up his cross and following Jesus. So let's get back now to Antioch and Pisidia. They take this long journey to Antioch and Pisidia. And this is the second city, Antioch, we meet in the book of Acts. In fact, at this time, during Paul's day, there were about 16 cities in the Roman world that were called Antioch. So this makes it really challenging for you and me, right? And the reason there's all these cities named Antioch is kind of like why there are all these cities named Alexandria. Because Alexander the Great wanted to make his name great. And he, every, nearly every city he conquered, he, he names after himself. Well, the same kind of egomaniac was around in this guy named Antiochus. And so he's going from city to city, and he's naming it after himself. But this is an Antioch that was in the region of Pisidia. Pisidia was part of the Roman province of Galatia, okay? So a lot of you are probably familiar with the book of Galatians, right? Well, that book is written to people who lived in places like Antioch in Pisidia. And um, the city of Antioch in this province was the leading city in that province. It was the largest it was the capital area. It was where the, the civil magistrates lived. It was where the Roman military was. And at that time that, that Paul uh, visited it, it was at its peak prosperity. We're also told by Josephus that there was a large Jewish community that lived there. About He says there were 2,000 Jewish families that lived there. So who knows, maybe something around 10,000 Jews or so are living in this area of uh, Antioch and Pisidia. And so it's no surprise that Paul journeys to this leading city in the province of Galatia, because throughout his journeys, as we'll see, one thing he, he does is he stops in all of the great capital cities. He stops in places like 
large cities like Ephesus and, and Corinth, and he desires to go to Rome. And in all of these places, he wants the church to be big there so it can serve as a hub to go out and reach all of the village and all of the towns surrounding that large metropolitan area. And so that's one reason uh, uh, Paul probably wanted to go uh, to this Antioch. Another reason some people give why he might have gone here is because Sergius Paulus, who they were just with on Cyprus, who was a powerful Roman authority, he also had family members who were also powerful Roman authority um, elsewhere in, in, the, in the Roman nation. And in one place they primarily lived, and we have historical evidence of this, is they lived near Antioch in Pisidia. They owned a lot of land there, and they had some... Um, <coughs> some administrative roles there. And so Sergius Paulus might have said, well, um, I want you to go and, and, and preach to my family, right? And here's maybe a letter of recommendation that I can write to them and, and maybe you can go and, and, and maybe that was maybe part of the reason that they're going to this place. Uh, another reason they might have go been going to this place is because Paul tells us why he initially visited Galatia. And he writes in his epistle to the Galatians, that he had a sickness at this time and that uh, a lot of people at that time who might have been sick in the lower areas of Pamphylia where apparently there was a lot of malaria, they would go up to the higher elevation of Antioch in, in uh, uh, or Pisidia and they would um, recover there. This is what Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 13. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Now, some people, you know, seem to have a problem thinking that Paul ever got sick. They just can't imagine or fathom the idea that Paul got sick. Why? Because he's healing all these people, right? But just because God is working through you to heal you, uh, you know, people's diseases and sicknesses doesn't ever mean that you might not have a bout of sickness, right? Or some uh, struggle in the flesh that you have to deal with. And I think, you know, that's what we see here. So did Paul journey to Antioch of Pisidia partially to recuperate? That might have been another reason. But whatever the case, we know the main driving force behind Paul's dangerous journey was simply that he was compelled to share the message of Jesus Christ. And that is what he does when he steps into the synagogue there with all of the 2,000 Jewish families probably cramming to hear what he might have to say. He begins to open his mouth and he preaches Jesus. Let's look at Acts 13 verse 15. And after, this is talking about in the synagogue, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. All right. So a synagogue in Paul's day, it would follow a certain order. First thing they would do when they gathered, they, they would recite the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, right? Then they would have a prayer. Then they would have a reading from the books of Moses. Then they would have a reading from the prophets. Then they would have a priestly blessing. And then they would have a word of exhortation, which basically was a sermon. 
In fact, at the end of the book of Hebrews, we're told this in Hebrews 13, 22. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Now, the book of Hebrews is kind of a large book in the New Testament sense, right? It certainly is a lot longer than the sermon we're going to read here in Acts 13 that Paul preaches. And so what Luke is giving when he writes the sermons in Acts, and we read them in, you know, three or four minutes, I imagine they're just summaries. They're faithful summaries of what was preached by Peter or by Stephen or Paul, but these guys preached a lot longer. In fact, a lot of people think that the book of Hebrews was a sermon that was written by the Apostle Paul. And one thing the Christian communities would do with the apostolic sermons and the apostolic writings is in their gatherings, after they would read the scriptures, they, they would then read like a sermon from Paul, for instance, which you know, we now has become scripture too. And, and so that's kind of a similar following to the synagogue style of, of the way of doing things. And we saw last Sunday um, that the Jews had something at the time called the custom of the courtesy of the synagogue, which simply meant that if a prominent Jewish teacher was visiting a city and was in the area, they were asked if they had anything to say. Right? So we saw how both of these guys, Paul and Barnabas, had very prominent credentials, right? Paul was the rabbi. He, he was the great disciple of Gamaliel. He was probably talking to the synagogue rulers and, and, and kind of uh, the, the chief Jewish guys there in the city, and they're probably uh, excited as they're going to that synagogue service to ask him to say something, right? And so he, he, uh, right, he obliges them and says, oh, well, of course I have something to say. And in the sermon, which we're about to read, it's the longest recorded sermon that we have of Paul in the book of Acts. In fact, there's three primary sermons of Paul that represent his three different teaching styles. One is his long sermon here in the synagogue, which is heavily focused on the Old Testament, right? Because it's dealing with his audience, Jews. Then in Acts 17, we see a long sermon where he's speaking to philosophers and Gentiles in the city of Athens, and uh, the way he talks there is different than how he would have talked in the synagogue. It's a, a, a different apologetic strategy, how he's sharing the faith. And then lastly, in, in Acts chapter 20, we see a word of exhortation that he gives to the Christian elders in Ephesus. And again, we see a different sort of flow to that sermon. But we're sort of getting given representatives of how he would have shared, how he would have taught, depending on the audience he was dealing with. And so let's look at how he would, how he would speak to Jews or those who feared the God of the Jews. And this is what he says, Acts 13, verse 16. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, 
to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. All right, so let's just stop right there. So Paul opens his sermon with a detailed history of God's faithfulness to the Jewish people despite their unfaithfulness, right? And he opens by having a point of contact with him, right? He, he says, our fathers. He, he wants them to know, yes, that I, I too am, uh, you know, a descendant of, of Abraham. And, and let me tell the story in a way that highlights the faithfulness of God, not when we were good, but when we were bad. Let me highlight the fact that God's initiative and deliverance is what has mattered most in our history. So it is not we who chose God, right? Adam didn't cry out and choose God in Ur. No, it was God who chose Abraham, right? And uh, so think about it in Deuteronomy 4, verse 37, it says this. Moses speaks, saying, And because he loved your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance, as it is this day. Right? Later in Deuteronomy, uh, the people of Israel are called a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. They had been unconditionally chosen by God to be a priestly people who would be a blessing to all of the nations. And God set his love and his affection on them, not because they were worthy of that love or affection, but because he is a good and gracious God and wants to show that he wants to pour out his love and affection on all people. Now in verse 18 in the sermon, Paul says this, Now for about, about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. The word put up simply means tolerated. Or as the KJV puts it, he, su <laughs> he suffered he their manners. He suffered he their manners, right? He, he tolerated, he put up with their unfaithfulness, with their idolatry, with their complaining, with their whining, with their little, you know, infantile manner when they were spe speaking and dealing with God, right? The word there simply means to put up with someone's manners or mood. Paul is alluding to Deuteronomy 1 where God said that he bore Israel and he put up with them in the wilderness when they were unfaithful. Aren't you glad that God bears with and puts up with moody people, right? Amen. He puts up with grumpy people. When you don't deserve it, God puts up with you. Now, so what is Paul stressing in the history? He's stressing the faithfulness of God. And to highlight that even more, he brings up the long period of the judges, which he says is about 450 years. There were 12 judges in the book of Judges, and they each reigned for about a generation. And this is what we're told about that period in Judges 2, verse 18, which is a summary of the book of Judges. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning <laughs> because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead and they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, 
nor from their own stubborn way. Yet, in the midst of their idolatry, when they groan and when they cry and when they moan, what happens? God raises up another judge, which is simply a deliverer. It's a savior figure. A, the judges were just types and shadows, pictures of Jesus Christ. So, after all God's bearing, after all God's putting up, after all God's choosing a special people for himself, not on the basis of what they did, but on the basis of his good purpose for them, this is then what he says, continuing in his sermon in Acts 13, 23. This is speaking of David now. From this man's David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. According to the promise. Well, promise. Well, all of the Jews at the synagogue would have known what Paul was talking about. The promise God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, that David's seed would reign forever. And this promise is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 132 summarizes the promise like this. Psalm 132, 11. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. So, you know, the Jews were waiting a thousand years for this promise. In fact, just 500 years after it, during the time of Ezekiel, he reiterated the promise in this way. Ezekiel 34, 23. God is speaking through Ezekiel. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant, David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Well, this promised good shepherd, this promised son of David, this promised king who would reign forever, Paul declared that that promised person had arrived. A man from the lineage of David had been born, and his name was Jesus. His name was Yahweh's salvation. And this man actually had been given the everlasting throne of David. Just as God raised up David to be king, as Paul says earlier in the sermon, so in a greater way, he raises up the son of David, Jesus Christ. He even raises his from the dead so he no longer experiences corruption. And he is seated at the right hand of God right now, ruling and reigning forever. Now, this important theme of Jesus being the seed of David is sprinkled throughout Paul's letters. In 2 Timothy 2.8, he says this, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. When he's writing to Timothy, he actually is imprisoned. But what? But the word of God is not chained. The fact that Paul was announcing the Davidic king had received an everlasting throne and is currently reigning at God's right hand, got him into a lot of trouble. It's, he says he suffered greatly. But even though he suffered, he says, I might be chained, but the good news of the gospel, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the word of God is never changed, right? He knew the message of the gospel was a liberating message, someone who's, something that set people free from chains, right? 
So he encouraged Timothy to continue to preach the gospel in season and out of season, to fight the good fight of faith, right? For God's word is living and powerful and sharper than, two, than any two-edged sword. And as we preach and as we proclaim and as we stand on the word of God, we know it, it is an unchained word and it goes to work in our life. What does Paul continue to say in the sermon? Verse 24. So after he raised up his Savior Jesus, when did he do this? Verse 24. After John, who's he speaking about? John the Baptist. After John the Baptist had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, speaking about the Messiah. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandal of whose feet I am not worthy to lose. So it seems Paul is assuming that these people in Antioch of Pisidia were very well aware of the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, as we'll go further in Acts, it seems like much of the Jewish community all around the Mediterranean was very familiar with the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, Paul encounters an itinerant preacher who's preaching the message of John the Baptist named Apollos a guy who was really powerful in word and deed. And when he hears the message of the one who came after Jesus, he becomes even more powerful in his preaching. But, um, you know, uh, I imagine that John's message of repentance and his ministry was, was all the buzz in, in the many Jewish uh, festivals in, in Jerusalem and all the pilgrims who would come there would hear about John. Maybe some of them were even baptized in the Jordan and they would take that message back to the place uh, where they lived. So uh, Paul is simply announcing that this Jesus was the one the great prophet John the Baptist had been preaching about. The one that Jesus says, no, there has been no man greater than John the Baptist. Not even Moses was greater than John the Baptist. And a lot of the Jews believed in his ministry. They believed what he was saying. And, 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 and Paul is announcing to them the news that had come to fulfillment that John preached about. Verse 26, he goes on and says, men and brethren... Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. To you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Here Paul proclaims the very basic message of the gospel. A gospel, not just, he says, to the family of Abraham, but also to everybody in the synagogue who simply feared God, right? Even the uncircumcised. It's a gospel for all people. And this gospel is that the prophecies that have long foretold of this Savior that was coming to the world, these prophecies have been fulfilled. The Messiah Indeed, you didn't know he would be crucified, but he has been crucified. But God raised him from the dead. And many witnesses. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthians, 
500 witnesses have seen this risen Christ, including myself. Let's read that basic declaration in 1 Corinthians 15.3. I delivered to you, first of all, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, amen? According to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen by Cephas, which is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, that's the brother of Jesus, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. You know, one, one interesting part of Paul's gospel proclamation here in his sermon in the synagogue is, is about Christ's death. He says that Jesus was taken down from the tree. Now, I imagine he probably expanded on that point in the sermon. Remember, Luke's probably just giving us a summary here. And what is he saying? He's saying the Messiah was not stoned like most Jews who were put to death. Rather, he hung on a tree, right? He, he was not beheaded like John the Baptist. He was not, you know, uh, hung. He, uh, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, just from a rope or something like that. He, 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 he was not drowned. No, he, his specific death was that he hung on a tree, on a tree. Why? Why is that the message here? Well, because on the tree he was bearing our sins. On the tree he stood condemned in our place. So soon after his trip in all the cities in Galatia that he goes to, and when he returns to Antioch, he writes a letter. And he writes it to these, these uh, Christians he had just visited. And he expands on the point of Jesus hanging on the tree. Now it's interesting, like I said, the book of Galatians, it's the only book that's written to a province. Written to many cities in, the, in a Roman province. Every other book by Paul is written to a city. Ephesians, Ephesus, Romans, Rome, uh, Corinthians, Corinth, uh, Thessalon Thessalonians, Thessalonica, or it's written to individuals like Timothy or Titus or Philemon, that sort of thing. But, but, but Galatians is written to this whole province of Galatia, and he expands on the teaching that he would teach in their synagogues. And this is what he says in Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now do you understand the power of, of, of Paul preaching that in the synagogue there, that he was hung from a tree? The cross was not simply an instrument of gruesome Roman torture. It certainly was that, but it was more than that. The cross was also a tree. And Deuteronomy says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. How could the Messiah be cursed? Well, he could be cursed because he wasn't cursed in and of himself. He was cursed for us. He was cursed for you. You know, whenever the Bible says that God or Christ has done something for you, that is the message of the gospel. He bore the curse we deserved. He bore your sin in his own body, and that's why he was cursed. The penalty for your sin has already been paid because Jesus hung on the tree for it. 
Therefore, those in Christ are redeemed from the curse of the law, meaning we have been rescued from the curse pronounced by the law because Christ bore it on our behalf and he purchased us as his own possession. That's the liberating message of the gospel that we are set free from sin. We are set free from death because Jesus has borne it on our behalf. That should make you happy. Right? The Bible says that we have joy inexpressible and full of glory because we know the too good to be true news of Jesus Christ who hung on a tree for us. Well, after giving that basic gospel declaration, proclamation, Paul goes on to say that the word of the resurrected Christ should be believed not simply because there's a bunch of witnesses who, who testify to seeing Christ, including himself, but also because the scripture give witness that Jesus would be raised. So there's not just, you know, the testimony of one people saying, but there's the testimony of scripture. And then thirdly, there's the testimony of the Spirit at work in people's heart through the proclamation of the message. But this is what he goes on to say about the Scripture. Acts 13, 32. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for their children and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Speaking of his resurrection. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken this. This is Isaiah 55. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. If the Holy One was to see no corruption. It couldn't have been referring to David because he's in the grave and he's rotten and he's corrupted. He's fell asleep, right? When you fall asleep, after three days you corrupt. But this man, Jesus, never corrupted. He's never seen corruption because on the third day, God raised him from the dead. <laughs> and he is part of new creation reality, new creation life. And he has poured out that new creation life on his church and his spirit. And he says... I, just as I have suffered no corruption, so I want all my people, all my body, to never suffer corruption with me. Aren't you glad? You know, believing in the resurrection really changes everything. It is why we come to church every Sunday, because we believe Jesus is alive. We believe that he rose on a Sunday 2,000 years ago. We believe that we have a great high priest in heaven. We believe that we have a mediator and have direct access to God. We believe that we have a king who's reigning right now at God's right hand, who, who belongs all, all, all of our allegiance belongs to him, right? Well, how does Paul conclude this sermon? He concludes by telling them the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection, as well as giving a warning. Let's look at Acts 13, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. <laughs> wow, that's a radical statement. In fact, it is the most radical gospel statement that we have seen in the book of Acts up until this point. 
Through Jesus has preached the forgiveness of sins. Remember the, the angel showed up to Joseph and said, You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And forgiveness is the cancellation of debt that stands against us. Um, right? And he's saying that that forgiveness that is given to you, it's found through one source. It's found through Jesus. It's not found in the temple system. It's not found in your sacrifices. It's not found in your good works. No, there is a blanket of forgiveness that is offered to you through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. For on the cross He bore our sin and suffered the penalty for it death. So forgiveness is available. Their eternal redemption and forgiveness has already been secured by Jesus Christ. No one is too bad for the work of Jesus Christ. All of their badness, no matter how bad it was, he already bore that on the cross and purchased their forgiveness by his blood. This is the good news. All they needed to do was receive it. As Jesus said, those, he tells Paul on the road to Damascus, those who receive the forgiveness of sin, right? They, they will enter into the kingdom of light. They have to have the redemption that has been accomplished be the redemption that is applied to their life. And then Paul takes it even a step further. He says that they could not only receive forgiveness, which takes care of all of their debt, but they could also receive justification. You know what to be justified means? It means to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. So not only is all your bad stuff wiped away, now you have a positive goodness upon you. You've been clothed with the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Right? And it's offered by a gift. Paul says to the Romans in Romans 5.17, he says, those who receive the abundance of grace or unmerited favor and the gift of righteousness, these are the ones who reign in life. And that is something, Paul says, no one could ever obtain under Moses' law. They couldn't attain justification. The law could only show you you were unrighteous and you were in need of the righteousness of God. But the gospel could good, could, is the only thing that could give you what the law showed you what you needed. And so Paul, he repeats this point throughout his letters. For instance, in Galatians 2, when he's writing to these same people later, he says this in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. But how? By faith, or really could be translated, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ on the cross. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And what is the result of the justification we have? Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amen. Amen. So then the last two verses of his sermon, then we'll, we'll close up. It goes like this in Acts 13, 40. This is how Paul ends, and he, he gets pretty serious here. He just declared the best news they could ever hear, and then he tells them this. Beware, therefore, lest what is spoken in the prophets come upon you. And then he quotes the prophet Habakkuk. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it.
to you. Beware. Don't be like the people in Habakkuk's day. They scoffed when the prophet told them that destruction was coming from Babylon. And because they scoffed and did not humble themselves and did not receive God's deliverance, what happened? They were destroyed. You know, this is the only time the word perish or destroyed is used in the book of Acts. It's used in the Gospels to speak of moths destroying earthly treasures. It's a word that Jewish writers use to speak of the destruction of people during Noah's flood. Paul did not want anyone in the synagogue to be destroyed. He didn't want anyone in the synagogue to perish, right? God, it says in Peter writes, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants everyone to receive his forgiveness and righteousness. He wants everyone to receive the gift of life. He wants everyone to place their faith in Jesus and follow him. Amen. So the greatest news of all ends with a solemn warning, which is this. Everything you ever need has been provided for you. But you better make sure that you avail yourself of what has been given to you, right? You better make sure that you receive the gift. You better make sure that you confess Jesus as Lord of your life and that you follow him. Amen? So we're going to take communion here. Has anyone here not received a communion cup? Go ahead and lift your hand. We'll get a communion cup into your hand. And, you know, communion, of course, is just the gospel in miniature form. <laughs> uh, this is where we understand Jesus hung on the tree. Yeah, when we partake the bread, we understand that Jesus bore the curse for us. And so when you take this little piece of bread, understand that in his body, he bore that curse in, in his body so that you never need to bear it. When you take the cup and you see it represents the blood of Jesus, understand that it represents the washing away, the forgiveness, the purging of all of your sin. So you can be liberated, you can be free, and you can follow Jesus with a, with a seriousness, with a joy, with a somberness, with a commitment like Paul and Barnabas. So let's read 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life on the cross. Thank you that that cross wasn't just an instrument of torture, but it was a tree where you bore the curse for all of our sin. Lord, you bore the curse of the law so we might not be under it. So we just take it in thanksgiving in Jesus' name. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood. We thank you that you said that you shed your blood for the remission of all of our sins. Lord, we believe that we will not forget, Lord, that you forgive all of our sins. And so we just thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we're purged, we're laundered, we're white as snow because of the blood that was shed on our behalf. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. I want to invite you, if you can, 
Let's stand and let's worship. Mm-hmm.